American politics has reached a moment of existential uncertainty. Beyond the headlines and news alerts are problems bigger than any one administration. Problems that stem from the deep tensions and challenges in America's political institutions. If you agree, then you'll want to check out Politics in Question, hosted by Lee Drutman, Julia Azari, and James Walner, who are three lively experts on American political institutions and reform. Each episode, they take a hard look at how our political institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. On a recent episode, they sat down with Adam Gentleson, author of Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy, to discuss what extent is the filibuster responsible for the Senate's current dysfunction. Politics in Question also hosts an expert panel of guests such as Azara Klein, Ethan Porter, and Rachel Blum. Join Lee Drutman, Julia Azari, and James Walner as they discuss political reforms in this first-of-its-kind show that asks the very biggest questions crucial to our democracy. So listen to Politics in Questions to become a more informed, engaged citizen. To listen, search Politics in Question on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Kara Ong Whaley, Associate Director at JMU Civic and your co-host. Hello, this is Abe Goldberg. I serve as Executive Director of JMU Civic as well as a co-host on our Democracy Matters podcast. And I am Angelina Clapp, JMU Civics Democracy Program Fellow and also a co-host for our podcast. Joining us on this episode is Dr. Kira Sanbonmatsu, who is a professor of political science at Rutgers University and senior scholar at the Center for American Women in Politics at the Eagleton Institute of Politics. Her research interests include gender, race, ethnicity, parties, public opinion, state politics, and and campaign finance. Part of our discussion today, we'll be talking about her most recent book, A Seat at the Table, Congresswomen's Perspectives on Why Their Presence Mattered, co-authored with Kelly Dittmar and Susan J. Carroll. In your most recent book, A Seat at the Table, Congresswomen's Perspectives on Why Their Presence Matters, you interview multiple congresswomen on the importance of their presence in Congress. In one interview, Republican Representative Diane Black said that she believes that women look at issues differently than men do. We come at things in a different way, and since 52% of the population is female, it behooves us to make sure that we have a voice, a woman's voice in the discussions. With that being said, how does having women at the table affect policy and decision-making processes? Well, thank you for raising that question, and thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's great to be here. I'm excited to talk about our book, A Seat at the Table. Um, And we had the privilege of interviewing most of the women serving in the 114th Congress, and we're just grateful for their participation. And the women we interviewed strongly believe that women do bring different perspectives to the policymaking process and that it really matters being at the table. And they work to bring other women along and they see a special responsibility to mentor women and girls and to speak for women across America. Um, And when we think about what they have brought as women to Congress, they talked about issues such as uh, caregiving and the perspective of caregivers and how that impacts legislation. Another common area, women's health, violence against women, 
And of course, issues around sex discrimination. So a lot of different themes around gender, gendered life experiences, and the idea that women have, on average, different life experiences than men. And that historically, women are bringing issues into Congress that wouldn't have made it to the agenda otherwise. They also talked about um, gender differences in the process of being in in the making legislation. Um, they talked about work style and because some of the reasons that women run for office are policy driven as opposed to um, trying to climb a political ladder. They talked about wanting to find common ground and um, find solutions to problems and being willing to compromise. So a lot of the women we spoke to talked about wanting to get things done and they thought that was a little bit different than the experience that men have in Congress. Just as a follow-up, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you learned from your interviews about their perspectives on the traditional barriers to women's political participation in policy and decision-making. You know, that's an interesting question because in this day and age, women have so many more opportunities for being in politics right now. Um, And even at the time of our interviews in the 114th Congress, we had experienced Speaker Pelosi, um, and she was at that time minority leader. So women have made incredible gains. Um, but the, some of the women definitely thought it was a challenge to run for Congress. And they talked about some of the challenges being about scrutiny, public uh, scrutiny, media scrutiny, maybe high, holding women to higher standards than men. Um, So somewhat different campaign experiences um, we heard from some of the women. And they also talked about campaign finance as a challenge that um, on average seems a little bit harder for women to raise money. Uh, Women of color that we interviewed were more likely to um, talk about that. So definitely they saw some challenges. Some of the challenges actually were also about challenges within the institution. So um, the women senators we interviewed, some of them argued, well, in the Senate, senators are so powerful, you wouldn't um, dare cross a woman senator or approach her in a in a manner that expressed sexism because senators are all so powerful. But, um, but it's a little bit surprising that even there, some of the women we interviewed thought that there are challenges to authority, even in the Senate, and that women have to prove themselves when they first enter the institution. Um, and in the House as well, challenges to being taken seriously, being recognized as members of Congress and not being assumed to be staff members. Women of color um, related some experiences about um, you know, the importance of their presence in the institution and uh, educating staff and the public and other members about what a member of Congress can look like. So those are some of the challenges, although they also, um, you know, we also encountered women who thought that things had changed so much that women really are on a level playing field. So it varied a bit in our interviews. It's, it's just interesting to me, as you were describing that, you were referring, of course, to Congress, but how many other institutions would fit that same characterization of women's experience in the workforce, whether it be in higher education or in or in a more corporate setting? Oh, absolutely. I think that we could think about Congress as a workplace and um, being integrated, you know, and to what extent is the climate favorable or inclusive. So I, I think that there are a lot of parallels that we could draw between politics and, and other spheres. Of course, what's different, I think, about 
Congress or other legislative positions is that women are playing a representational role. So they they are speaking for their constituents and they have um, obligations and representational responsibilities that they bring along with them. So I think that um, that is a little bit different about the political sphere. According to a Pew Research Center study, there is a record number of women serving in the 117th Congress. 27% of members in the House are women and 24% of senators are women. This is a 50% increase from the 96 women serving in the 112th Congress just a decade ago. Can you discuss what issues and factors shape candidate emergence and why candidate emergence might differ by gender? Yeah, that's a great question. We did a study years ago at the center about state legislators. And uh, one of the takeaways of that report is that women are more likely to run for office after having been recruited. And I think that that makes sense if we think about historically what pathways have been open to women and men, and that politics has not been as welcoming um, or as uh, anticipated as an occupation for women compared to men. Um, it's less like, been less likely for women to aspire to being in office, being in politics. And so they, are, they were, in our study, more likely to have come to the legislature after being recruited. Of course, some women got to the legislature because they always wanted to be in politics, and they their pathway was similar to men's pathways. So I think recruitment has played a larger role for women um, than men historically. And in recent years, we've seen women really seizing some of the opportunities uh, that have come about through open seats. 2018 was um, a real breaking point or path-breaking election for women. That's when the numbers really rose for women running for congressional seats, partly taking advantage of open seat opportunities and also taking advantage, mostly were Democratic women, um, on the momentum of social movements and the Women's March and some of the uh, momentum coming out of the the, uh, defeat of Hillary Clinton, really, and uh, women being the resistance to Donald Trump. So I think there were a lot of different factors coming together, but women historically have been more likely to reach Congress through open seat opportunities because most incumbents are men. And we know that incumbents tend to be returned to office. Can you discuss how social movements and women's groups have contributed to women's political representation over time? Yeah, women's groups and uh, social movements have been extremely important to understanding the rise of women in politics. Um, Women's movements broadly have challenged norms around appropriate gender roles. Um, They've also, specific to the political realm, created organizations um, to support women in politics. You can think of women's political action committees, women's campaign training programs, um, PACs such as EMILY's List has been the pro-choice Democratic Women's PAC has been really important to particularly electing women to Congress on the Democratic side. Um, I think social movement activity has also given women the reasons to run 
Um, women really care about their communities. Women, uh, we saw women in the civil rights movement playing important leadership roles. And of course, with the Voting Rights Act of 1965, there were more opportunities created in terms of the right to vote and the kinds of districts that uh, women of color can run from. So social movement activity has been really important in a lot of different ways, directly and indirectly to women's representation. I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the effects of having more women in uh, having more women in Congress, um, and also the increase. You know, perhaps uh, you know you, you mentioned that you mentioned that it, that we've really seen the rise of women since 2018. Do we know anything about how an increase in women's representation in Congress has affected policymaking and policy outcomes? And then I also wonder, just thinking about how there's been an increase of women in the current presidential administration, if we can anticipate any differences in presidential policymaking because of an increase of women serving um, at the presidential level. Well, I think what we've seen um, in recent years is consistent with um, the history of the impact of women in Congress, which is that we see women uh, advocating for, on average, different issues than men and playing particular leadership role in bringing issues important to women to the fore forefront. And women, of course, have partisan affiliations. And um, the newly elected women who came into office after the 2018 cycle were predominantly Democratic women, of course. And um, a lot of history-making elections, uh, election of women of color in that year as well. And so I think that what, what you continue to see is different types of issues and a different issue emphasis. And this continues in the Biden-Harris administration. So um, Harris has been tasked with things like working women as a platform and the effect of COVID on working women. Um, so I think that we know historically women and men have championed somewhat different issues. If you look at bill introduction in Congress, Democratic women in particular have been important to setting the agenda for women's rights issues and bringing issues that hadn't been addressed before. And so we continue to see Democratic women playing an outsized role on those issues. In a Center for American Women and Politics report titled The Money Hurdle in the Race for Governor, you write that women lag behind men in holding gubernatorial office and that the percentage of women serving as governors is lower than women serving in congressional offices. You also find that this trend is even more apparent for women of color and Republican women. Can you speak about some of your findings and why lags in women's representation continue at the state level? Yeah, well, thank you so much for asking about that report. This was a report that we did at the center in um, partnership with the National Institute on Money and Politics, which just has the most amazing data about contributions at, in all 50 states. And so we're just really, really excited to be working on this project. And I, I'll say also that we focus a lot of research in the women in politics area on why more women aren't running for office. And we really need to pay more attention to what happens to the women who are running and how they're running and whether they have the resources that they need to run. Um, so this report looked at individual contributions to candidates uh, across time, um, back to 2000. And I think that one of our takeaways is that women are successful raising money, that they they are raising money and they can be competitive. 
But one of the things we found is that they do that by having, on average, more elective office experience. So it seems that there's somewhat of a different um, qualification level needed to obtain those same resources. Um, so that part, I think, suggests is consistent with anecdotal um, reports that women feel they don't get the same level of support that they see going to their male colleagues. So it's, it's a really important topic and people interested in seeing more women in office need to fund those women and support them and make sure that they can get their campaign message out. Uh, we also find that women are more reliant on small contributions, uh, and that could indicate it takes more time to raise those funds because they're raising money in smaller denominations. They're also less likely to self-finance than men. And I think that that speaks to the diminished personal resources of women compared to men. And last, we find that women are underrepresented as donors, that uh, if you look at who is contributing to campaigns, men are much more represented as donors, and then they also give more. So this is an area where women's political voice is not equal to men's. So I'm curious, is there something inherently different about fundraising and running for governor than, say, a House seat as it relates to this topic? Because there does, it, it, the, the report does indicate that there is a lag in gubernatorial offices that's more extensive than that in congressional offices. I think that um, one of the challenges is tied to um, the type of office that governors represent. Um, it's an executive office. So congressional office is legislative office. And there's some experimental and survey evidence indicating that voters might be more comfortable with women in uh, non-executive positions. You know, the, the buck stops with the governor. Um, the governor's the leader of the state in a way that members of Congress are one among many legislators. Um, and you can kind of see similar challenges for women at the presidential level, frankly, even though we did see a record number of women running this year. So I think part of the challenge for women at the gubernatorial level is cultural acceptance of women being in executive positions. And I think that this can limit the number of women we see running, and then it could make it somewhat dif more difficult for women to access the resources they need to be successful. And we also suspect that um, organizations such as Emily's List and other uh, female donor networks it, that target Congress are probably more successful with out-of-state contributions because everyone is affected by congressional decision-making. At the state level, um, I suspect it's harder to convince people to contribute to, to governors in other states, and typically governors attract less out-of-state money than congressional races. So that so those are some reasons why it might be different. Although we are seeing a rise in off, you, you know, like you're uh, you're in New Jersey, we're in Virginia. We, our two states have elections this year, right? And we've seen, you know, just over the since 2017, a in, in a rise in outside donors flooding into the states in these off-year elections. Right. No, that's that's true. I'm just thinking on average compared to what's at stake for an individual. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was actually going to ask: Are you, with with New Jersey having a gubernatorial race going on now, just like uh, we do here in Virginia? Are, are you seeing women candidates for the office that have a chance to contend? 
No, we have a pretty popular governor and sitting governor and Governor Murphy. So it's not looking like a particularly competitive race. And most of the, excuse me, women in New Jersey politics are Democrats. We do have a, a woman lieutenant governor um, with alongside Murphy, but not not seeing uh, women emerging as candidates now. I wonder if you could share, based on your understanding of challenges and barriers that women face in political participation and representation, um, what advice would you give for women thinking about running for office? I think that uh, I would emphasize the opportunities that are available right now for women. Um, Coming off 2018, where we saw a historic election for Democratic women, 2020, my colleague, um, Uh, Dr. Kelly Dittmar at the center just released a report about 2020. And one of the things she finds is that Republican women did really well in 2020 and kind of came back um, in terms of their numbers in the U.S. House after losing ground in 2018. So we're we're definitely seeing um, a change in who's running and we're seeing a change in how women are running. We're seeing younger women running. We're seeing women running with uh, strategies around Me Too and uh, using their status as mothers, as a credential. We're seeing more um, LGBTQ candidates running. We're seeing more um, women of color running. So I I just think that I would emphasize for for women who are thinking about it, the opportunities that are out there. And to bear in mind that women are outvoting men. So they have a lot of opportunity to play a bigger role in politics. Recent research by Sarah Oliver and Meredith Conroy accepts that some women defy gender norms and break into politics. They argue individuals who are more masculine will be more likely to be recruited, perceive of themselves as qualified, and express political ambition than less masculine individuals. Can you speak to how and why perceptions of masculinity and femininity might determine which candidates emerge? Yeah, I think this is changing, but because most elected officials have been men and uh, we're still with majority male elected officials, I think people associate politics, politicians, candidates with masculinity because men are associated with masculinity and uh, most uh, people in politics are men. Now, we know from psychological research uh, about personality traits that, you know, you can find men and women with masculine and feminine personality traits. So personality traits don't necessarily map onto gender, but we have these expectations, I think, built in from who we've seen doing politics that tends to value those masculine traits more. And then I think when people are sizing up candidates, candidates are often viewed through gender stereotypical lenses. So we will assume that the male candidates have masculine traits and we will assume that the female candidates have more feminine traits. But if we're valuing the masculine over the feminine, this is going to work to the disadvantage of women candidates. And years ago, it was advised that women candidates not run as women. And some women candidates said, well, how am I supposed to run if I can't run as a woman? But the idea was that um, being a woman was a disadvantage and and, um, femininity is a disadvantage. So you needed to run uh, as a man, I guess, uh, or not as a woman and show masculine traits. And voters might assume you have the feminine traits that you need, but to emphasize the masculine traits. So I think that, you know, we've come some distance on these questions. 
but um, we still make these assumptions. And I think the other piece of it is, as a society, we've been slow to recognize that traits associated with it, with women, um, compassion, empathy, maybe co- more collaboration rather than independence, leadership styles, that these types of traits could be beneficial in politics. So I think you know, we, we lose out as a society if we don't uh, welcome a range of traits into politics and think about um, different types of leadership styles. Because I think if we could have a more open uh, and broad set of expectations about who can lead and what qualities are useful in politics, I think that opens the doors for a broader range of candidates to step forward. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate you joining us. I hope that you will tell our friend Elizabeth Maddow at the Institute for, at the Eagleton Institute for Politics that we said hello. Um, We do have a question that we ask all of our guests on Democracy Matters. What would you do to strengthen our democracy? Great question. And uh, you might you might have anticipated my answer since I work at the Center for American Women in Politics. Uh, but you know, if I could do anything, I would persuade women to feel greater ownership in our democracy and to be more involved in all aspects of politics because women haven't realized their full potential for political influence. And, you know, by definition, I think that the country would be more democratic if women were more participatory and were heard more throughout our system.